0: So Leviticus 19. I hope you're there or will soon be there with me in your in your Bible. Leviticus 19. Pretty much stay right there today in our sermon time. So I do hope we can reflect on it together for the next little while. Glad you're here today. Hope you're doing well. It's good to see everyone here. It's a time of year when we always have on Sunday people traveling out of town, especially around holidays, and so we've got some folks missing today, I know, but it's so good to be with you, and I'm glad that you're here. You noticed in the reading earlier, it was on the screen, that bold-faced type, I hope you noticed that, because I think it's very important for us to reflect on the connection that's embedded in that song we just sang as well, and and in the which is based on Matthew twenty two, the thing I referenced earlier about the, they asked Jesus what what's the great commandment of the law, and he responded by saying, well actually there are two, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and great commandment. Second is like it, love your neighbors as On These two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. And the further I get into this this year is I reflected on this theme, you know, several times now. We come to this study from Leviticus 19 today, the the further we get in this and the more I study this, the more I see these connections that I didn't know were there and they're all over the place. Where the Bible, Jesus made the connection clearly in Matthew 22, you love God, but you can't separate that from your love for neighbor. (coughs) And so he could have stopped and he would have been okay with the the people he was talking to. You know, He could have just said, here's the first commandment, here's the great commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. He could have stopped, this is it. And nobody would have disagreed with him there. I mean, they wouldn't have said, that's not right. And, and and maybe in a way it would have been right, but it wouldn't have been complete. He didn't stop there. He didn't just say, all right, here's what it's all about. Love God. And in fact, when I farther I've gotten into this, the more I've realized that people don't stop. They don't just say, God's people don't just say, love God. That's what it's all about. They always, almost always they say, hey, well, love God, but... You know the way that you show your love for God? You know what it looks like? What, what does love for God look like? Here's what it looks like. It's loving this person over here that's not very lovable, or it's loving this person over here who's done you wrong, or it's loving this person over here, and it's hard to do that. It's inconvenient to do that. That's what loving God looks like. And so, I'm coming to this conclusion this year. As I've reflected on this theme again and again, you know, and I've... I've and quite honestly, there have been months where I'm like, man, I don't know what else to say about this. We talked about it a lot, right? And we talked about loving God a lot. We talked about loving neighbor a lot. So, what else is there to say? And then every time I ask that question, in some way, God answers it by saying, well, here's a text. You haven't talked about this. And He, and he, and he, sheds, he sheds new light on this. And that's, that's why we come to Leviticus 19 today, because. There are these connections that are fascinating and helpful. And so that bold-faced type in the scripture reading a few minutes ago, at the end of these paragraphs, and you'll notice them in your Bible if you read carefully, I am the Lord, right? Did you notice that? Leviticus 19, look at at it again. I'm not going to read the entire text, but look at the end of verse 10. I am the Lord your God. Look at the end of verse 12. You'll notice this every two verses. I am the Lord your God. Verse, verse 12, I am the Lord. The end of verse 14, I am the Lord. End of verse 16, I am the Lord. End of verse 18, I am the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it? Why does God do that? Forget from one passage to the next. Oh, wait, wait, I forgot who's... Oh, yeah, it's the Lord. Is, is he reminding us? Is, is there, are our memories that bad? Or is there something embedded in this notion that we need to remember whose we are when we're thinking about how we ought to treat people, you know? And I think it's the latter. It's not just God reminding us again and again, oh, in case you forgot, remember, I am the Lord your God. Oh yeah, in case you forgot, I am, that's not it. He's saying, why do you do this? Why do you treat people well when they treat you badly? Because I am your God and that's what I do. And we'll come back to that. That'll be, that's a little little foreshadowing there. That's the conclusion to the text this morning, conclusion to the sermon. We'll get there in just a few minutes. Love is something we do. It's not something we feel. So when you look at Leviticus 19, what you have here is God's explanation of what he means by love your neighbor. And that's a pretty good answer to the question. Like, you know, I think we all want to know, what does it mean to love God? And what does it mean to love neighbor? I mean, I agree with that. My guess is we'd probably have 100% agreement today if we took a poll as you're leaving and we just ask you the question, do you think Christians ought to love neighbor? And if you would say no to that, we got, we got some work to do because this is, this is this basic stuff, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Everybody would say, yeah, I need to do that. Okay. What does that look like when you go to work tomorrow? What does it look like? And what does it look like when you're dealing with a cranky neighbor? What does it look like? What does it, what does it look like when you've when you, when you got family issues, you know, and you've got, you got folks who are extended family, whatever, you've you got these issues going on. And what does it look like? No, love for neighbor. What does it look like in the church? I mean, what does it look like? What does it look like, practically speaking? Here's God's answer. So I want to walk through this text with you for the next little bit. And there are five paragraphs. I mean, God outlined this for us by his I am the Lord, your God statements. And so these paragraphs are in two verse. You know, they have two verses each. So verses 9 and 10 and 11 and 12, 13 and 14 and so on through the text, God outlines it for us. And in the first little paragraph, verses 9 and 10, he says a couple of interesting things. He's speaking to an ancient Near Eastern culture. We don't think about it like this, but it has, I think you'll agree with this, it, it has so many real world 21st century applications. Look at verse 9. I mean, this, is, this is pretty simple. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, and you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So it's pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, we understand that. Most of us aren't farmers for a living. We don't necessarily raise grapes or whatever, but, but we understand the concept here. You see what he's saying? When you go out there and you reap the harvest... Don't get every last grape. You don't take every ear of corn. You're going to drop some grain on the ground. You're going to drop some grapes on the ground. If we can expand that to all sorts of agricultural things, right? You're, you don't pull up every potato. You don't pick every green bean. You pick it, but you don't go all the way up to the edges. According to Jewish traditions... They would say that you needed to leave about one sixtieth for the poor. I don't know where they came up with one sixtieth, but that was according to Jewish tradition, that was to expect you know it's kind of fair. You leave one sixtieth. I don't you know, how did you calculate one sixtieth? I guess it's just a guess, but you get the point of this, right? What God is saying, when you're when you're when you're reaping the harvest, you don't go all the way to the edge and neither do you go back a second and a third time. You can can see the difference between somebody who's generous and somebody who isn't. The person who's not generous really goes through with a fine-tooth comb and gets every piece. And then he goes back a second time. Then he goes back a third time, and he gets all the way in the corner. He goes all the way to the edge, maybe a little bit beyond the edge, to make sure he gets every grape. What God is saying here, "This this is what it looks like to love your neighbor. You do not... Do not go to great lengths for yourself, but rather leave some for the poor and for the sojourner. Now, what's the idea here? <clears throat> How does this apply today? Love the disadvantaged. You know, it's interesting, the wisdom of God here. He, he's not saying here, in this text at least, he's not saying that you pick it for them. And probably most scholars in coming on this text say, God doesn't want you to take away the dignity of the poor. He doesn't want you to take away the dignity of the immigrant. But rather, he wants you to give them an opportunity to work. And at the same time, they can provide for themselves through your generosity. And so he says, you leave this for them. You know, when you you read this, you think, what does this look like today? Maybe it looks something like this. Maybe it means... That when you are budgeting your monthly income, that you don't budget every last dime of it for yourself. Maybe you take 10%, maybe you take 3%, maybe you take some other percent of your, of your but you don't budget every dime for yourself, but rather you leave some extra so that that can then be shared with people who need it. Maybe that's what it looks like today because we don't have grapes to leave there on the field, right? But we've got some discretionary income. Or we should, right? When we, when we look at it, we think, you know, how can I honor the principle that's in this text? How can I love the poor? How can I love the sojourner? How can I be someone who loves the Lord my God? Here's the second paragraph, verses 11 and 12. This is just about honesty, How do you love your neighbor? What does it look like? Practically speaking, it means you tell the truth. It means you don't take what's not yours. You shall not steal. These are echoes of the Ten Commandments, of course, coming through here. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God I am Lord. He's simply saying here that you deal with other people honestly. You don't take what is not yours. You don't, you don't say something that is not true. Neither do you use the name of God in some sort of an oath and violate the name of God. And you see, again, echoes of the Ten Commandments. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't take the name of God in vain. Three of them right there in this passage that have to do with loving your neighbor. You know, it's interesting here because I've never thought about using God's name falsely as having something to do with neighbor, right? You should not profane the name of your God. I think what he's saying here is that when we lie as God's people, if we take something that isn't ours as a, and we're children of God, then we are profaning the name of the one who is our God. So if you, if I, if we cheat on our taxes... If we speak a a, a word that's not true to people at work, if we fudge the numbers on the report that we're turning in, if we do that, we are profaning the name of the one one whose name we wear. We are profaning God whose name we wear. We as Christians, treating people dishonestly, are profaning His name. I don't know, I've never made that connection really, that it is profaning him when I'm dishonest. How do you love your neighbor? What does it look like? It means when you shake hands on a deal, you honor the deal. It means when you turn in a report that the report is honest. It means that you are a person of your word because you wear the name of Jesus and your love for neighbor is a reflection of him. And so you're not gonna profane his name By being dishonest. It means you turn in an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. You don't clock in early before your work starts. You don't clock in after your work ends. That is, you don't steal time from your employer, but rather you do what you say you're going to do. This is what it means to love your neighbor. You do it by being honest. Look at this. Next paragraph here. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night till the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. And the, love those. This is the thread, I think, that unites these two verses. You love those over whom you have power. You think about it. Look what he says. Don't oppress your neighbor or rob him. This is someone you can take advantage of. The wages of a hired servant, the, the, the custom was... You hired a person for the day, you paid him at the end of the day. He was depending on you paying him to feed his family that night. And so when he works his 8 hours, or when he works his 10 or 12 hours, or whatever it is, at the end of the day, you pay him your wages. You don't say, I'll give them to you tomorrow. That means he's going to go home and he's going to be hungry and he and his family are going to be hungry that night. So you don't keep them till the next morning. I mean, he's just basically saying, as an employer, you pay your you pay your Wages fairly. You pay your employees fairly. You take care of them. You do what you say you're going to do. you got power to an extent over the people who work for you. Treat them fairly. Do you even see what he's saying? Love your neighbor. What does that look like? It means that if there's someone here in this assembly, if any of us have power over other people, whether it's a positional kind of authority in an employer-employee relationship or in some other kind of way, you take care of the people over whom you have power. I couldn't help but think how this verse applies to things going on in our culture even now. You've probably been, I don't know, maybe not, shocked or surprised over all the allegations of sexual misconduct among leading lights in Hollywood, people in positions of power. I couldn't help but think how this text, this whole text, but especially this one here, this part of it here, how much application it has to situations like that. Because so many of those stories that have come out, you know, the Me Too movement over the past several months where it's been in the limelight, how many of those stories are, there's a power differential there. There's a man in a position of power. He has a power to determine her success or lack of in the movie industry or whatever it is. And he takes advantage of that power, right? To abuse her. The, the word of God is eminently applicable. And, 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 and we, may, we may look at that from afar and say, I can't, just can't believe, I can't believe these guys have done stuff like that. I just, you know, it's, it's terrible. And it is. But, but this, comes, this comes to our houses as well, right? This comes to our places of, employ, of employment as well. How do we treat the people over whom we have some kind of authority or power, whether it's positional or if it's physical, being a stronger person in the presence of someone who is weaker? How do we take advantage of those situations? Do we take advantage of them? You see, what God is saying to us, what love of neighbor looks like is treating people with the dignity they deserve, even when you could get away with treating them otherwise. So, we pay what we say we're going to pay, and we do it on time. We treat people with respect. We treat people with the kind of respect they deserve because they too are God's children. So, just such an applicable thing. Verse, verse 14, you don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the earth. I mean, I think, you, I think what God is saying here is you learn a lot about a person's character when you watch how he or she treats people who are weaker or for whatever reason are in a position of vulnerability. How do you treat this person when you can get away with treating him or her poorly? What do you do? What do you do? God says, if you're one of mine, you're going you're gonna to treat those people well. Look at verses 15 and 16. This is a court setting. You should do no injustice in court. Don't be partial to the poor. Don't defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. If you look at a different translation, it will help a little bit in understanding what he's saying here. But I mean, we get the gist of it, right? In a court kind of setting. You do not defer to the great, but neither do you. Show partiality to the poor. You don't say, well, because the person is poor, I'm going to judge in favor of this person. No, you don't do that. You judge on the facts of the case, and you try to leave the poverty or the riches or the the, the socioeconomic level out of it. it. It's not relevant when you're determining what is right. And so you don't defer to the great, but neither do you show partiality to the poor. You let the facts of the case determine the outcome. You do it in righteousness. And he says in verse 16, you don't go around as a slanderer among your people. You ever had somebody at work slander you? You have to answer that out loud, but does it happen? Or you heard a rumor going around, and by the time it makes its way back to you, it's already been everywhere at work, and you found out that somebody's been talking badly about you. how did it make you feel? I mean, isn't that frustrating? Make you angry? Hurt? Betrayed, God says, don't do that. Don't do that to someone. You don't, you don't want somebody to do it to you, you don't do it to other people. You don't go around as a slanderer. And maybe he's talking about things in a court, in a law kind of setting. You don't say something bad about someone in a court setting. You don't stand up against the life of your neighbor. I think that language is a little bit unclear, but I think what he's saying is you don't do something that's going to put a neighbor's life in in danger. Look at the last little paragraph here though. You love those who have done wrong. You love those who have done you wrong. Look what he says. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. I mean this is pretty clear what he's saying. You don't you don't hate your brother. You got a problem with him, you go to him you tell him about it lest you incur sin because of him. You look at some different translations and it, it it clears it up a little bit. I think what he's saying here is that if I have a problem with you, if I see you doing something that's wrong, my obligation is to come to you and say, "Look, friend, you know what? What you're doing is wrong." And if I don't do that, then I myself are involved in your sin. If I know that you're engaged in sin and I don't have the kind of love for you in my heart that motivates me to come to you and say, "Look, you know, you're, you're dealing with this, and I think this is wrong. I think it's dangerous. If I don't love you enough to do that, then I am a partaker in your sin. That's what he's saying. So I don't harbor, we don't, we don't look at people's sins and, and cause it to make us bitter or filled with hate. But instead, we love one another enough to go to one another and say, Look, I want to help you walk through this. And if we don't, then we're involved in the sin Itself. Don't take vengeance, don't bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Those five pictures there are pretty interesting. Now, quickly, I, didn't, I did most of this as we were walking through this text, but let me spend just a, just a minute thinking about you and me. What does this look like in us? A couple of things I think that we need to reflect on as Christians is that we can't just say that we love people. We can't just say that. Again, I think every one of us would say, yeah, I know we need to love God. And yes, I know we need to love neighbor. And that's fine. Those are, those are moral principles everybody in this room agrees with that. Nobody's going to say, I don't think this is the right thing for us to do. We're all going to say that. But as I was reflecting on it this week, you know, I think one of the main things what he's, what he's saying to us is, love for neighbor is not easy. It's not just loving the people who look like you, talk like you, think like you, dress like you. It's loving the person who is different. At the first part of this passage, in verses 9 and 10, well, verse 10, the sojourner, Maybe this text has something to say to us about immigration. I know that's a hot-button political issue now that you wade into with a bit of trepidation. But at the very least, we all ought to agree with this as Christians. We ought to ask, what does love for neighbor have to say to us as God's people about immigration? He is talking specifically about the immigrant in verse 10 when he says, you love them, you shall, love, you shall uh, leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I don't know exactly what the answer to that is in specific situations. Only that if you look at the theme throughout the Old Testament, you will find this coming up again and again and again. What does it mean to love neighbor? Now, we might honestly and conscientiously come to different conclusions on the answer to that question. But we at least need to ask the question, love your neighbor as yourself. God himself said that principle relates to the person who is poor or to the person who is an immigrant. And so there ought to be, on our part, reflection about how the principles relate to one another. As Christians, we've got to think about things through a Christian lens and not through a party lens. What God is saying here to us is that love for neighbor has all sorts of implications for how we live our lives and that we're devoted to that priority more than we are to any other set of priorities. And so he's talking <coughs> He's talking to us about this changes who we are. It changes what we look like. It changes what we do. It changes our priorities. We look at everything through this lens. God says, I am the Lord, your God. And you don't treat people the way everybody else treats them. The way the world works is power means you do whatever you want to do. You're in a position of authority, you're in a position of power, you're going to act like this. That's the way the world works. I know that. You know that, right? People in positions of power, if they're not guided by some, some overarching moral commitment, some sort of ethic, some sort of Christian ethic, if they're not guided by that and they're in a position of power where they can do things and get away with them, you know what they do the vast majority of the time. They do what they think they can get away with. They'll take advantage of people. They will mistreat people. They will step on people and walk on people. But Christians don't do that. We don't do that. Why? I am the Lord your God. God says that. And so we live according to a different ethic. You know, I know you're wise enough Intelligent enough and thoughtful enough to walk through this text and think about it for yourself, and I hope you will. I hope we all will, because you know I I was honestly I I approach a text like this, and I think initially when when I started studying it, I was like, "Man, I don't know how I'm going to make this, you know, remotely interesting," because it's Leviticus, right? It's Leviticus. What does Leviticus have to say to the 21st century? I mean, these are ancient words. We don't talk about gleaning grapes and a lot of this stuff. But then as I got into the study, I was amazed at how applicable it is. And again, I see the wisdom of God. I want to close where I said I was going to close. That is by going to the example of Jesus. Because that's where we must find ourselves at the end of the day, right? That's where we go. That's where we must go with any text. Jesus isn't specifically mentioned here. But I think when you see the principles that are embedded in this text, you see what we see in the New Testament. And so we read Leviticus 19 through the Christian lens and we see there that we have that ultimate one, that neighbor, that one who loves his neighbor as himself, the one who was willing to go to the cross, the one, as we walked through this a few minutes ago, the one who was willing to to treat the poor, the immigrant, the one over whom he has ultimate authority, the one who could not act for himself. We see Jesus who stepped in and said, I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. I'm going to put his needs above my own. I'm going to offer myself for him or for her because he or she is incapable of offering himself. You know, this is where it ultimately goes every time is we find ourselves thinking, I can't live up to this. I struggle with loving neighbor as myself. I struggle when I'm loving a difficult person. I struggle when I'm loving a person that is hard to love. You know, I struggle with that. And we must find our way to the cross because it is there that we see the most beautiful picture of love for neighbor that we can ever even imagine, where Jesus was willing to sacrifice his own needs, sacrifice his own wants for us, the one who's not very lovable, The one who, even in that moment, was in rebellion. The one who had done awful things to to Jesus. The one who, by his or her actions, has shown a spirit of rebellion. And yet Jesus stepped in and said, You know, you're not very lovable, but because of who I am, I'm going to love you anyway. That's where we end up going with Leviticus 19. I can't do that. I can't do this. You can't, right? We only do it by the power God gives us through his spirit as we sit and gaze at gogatha and we recognize that is the most beautiful image and i'm going to fall short every day but we're going to try our best to live up to that beautiful picture of love for neighbor if you're not a christian this morning we want you to we want you to see jesus christ we want you to see his love we want you to see his His beauty, we want you to see his compassion and the way he looks at us, the way he looks at you with love. You don't deserve it. None of us do. But nonetheless, because of his nature, he extends to you and to me and to all of us this beautiful image of love. And if you're ready to respond to that love this morning with obedience, with faith in your heart, with trust, with repentance, with confession, with baptism, we invite you to come today and to put Jesus Christ on in baptism and accept the beauty of forgiveness as he extends to all of us that that wonderful invitation that if we come to him, he will respond by bestowing on us this this beautiful image of forgiveness. Maybe you've done that, but you haven't lived as one ought to have lived, and you want to make things right today between you and your creator. We urge you, there's really nothing in this world that's worth gaining if you lose your soul, if you lose your relationship. Jesus Christ. Why don't you come back today or come to him for baptism today. Let's stand and let's sing this song.